The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Joe Biden was not a favorite of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party during the primaries. But now that he's President Biden, progressives like Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State are very happy. This is especially important because Jayapal is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. In this episode, you'll get to know Jayapal, how a girl born in India became the first Indian-American woman elected to Congress. Sure, we talk policy, politics, and all about her Republican colleagues. But we also talk about her recent trip to India to see her parents as they battled COVID at the start of the horrific surge in cases there. Hear it all right now. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Jonathan. Okay, so President Biden just gave a joint session speech to the American people where he outlined a huge agenda, very um, forward-looking agenda uh, for the American people and for his presidency. You are the chair of the progressive, the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, all during the campaign all the talk was about how progressives didn't want Joe Biden. And once Joe Biden got elected, uh, how progressives were going to be giving Joe Biden the blues and they're going to be <laughs> fighting with him. Since you are the chair of the Progressive Caucus, what grade would you give him? Well, you know, what I have said uh, consistently is that progressives have helped define this moment. The campaign last year was an example of that. The push over the last 10 years for a $15 minimum wage by progressives has actually made it mainstream today. So Jonathan, I always say progressives are the first to the best and most just idea. And then we have to push like hell to get everybody else there. But Joe Biden has risen to the moment. Um, and I think, you know, he came into office recognizing the crises of racial inequality, of the pandemic, of unemployment, so many things that Americans never thought we would see, food lines around the block, as he talked about in his speech. And he uh, has come out with a very bold agenda, a very progressive agenda. He has taken the virus under control um, in a way that, you know, we only had dreamed about last year. But now 200 million shots in arms in just 99 days. And we feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So, so far... Joe Biden has been doing a very good job on uh, uh, on the president, you know, in the presidency. And now we just have to make sure that that continues, that he leans into it just as much with the American Jobs and Families Plan, which, by the way, we want to be one package, that he leans into even things that are going to be difficult, which he has done with tax reform. But even bigger than that, Jonathan, I think what progressives are uh, most excited about is that finally there is a frame for the conversation that has been the progressive lens for a very long time. And that is that government has the ability to really give opportunity and correct many of the wrongs that have been there before. And it is the problem is not going too big. It is going too small. And I've heard those words come out of Joe Biden's mouth. 
Um, okay, so I don't think I didn't notice you didn't give him an actual <laughs> grade, but from what you've just said, and I, from what you've just said, I think you stand by the grade I've seen in print that you've given him. You said an A so far. Correct. And so I, I give him an A so far because he has taken the virus under control. And that was job number one. And he has also proposed, you know, the, the things that we passed in the American Rescue Plan, money in people's pockets, shots in arms, kids back in school, um, help to businesses, the child tax credit, you know, cutting child poverty in half. I mean, these are progressive ideas that we should be crowing about. And I do crow about in terms of really getting assistance to people. So yes, so far I give him an A. That doesn't mean that I agree with him on every single thing. And you've seen, I've called him out on a number of things already. All right. So um, in reaction to the president, to the president's speech, um, and actually probably in, in reaction to what you've just said, um, by extension, George Will, my Washington Post columnist colleague, this this morning, and I'm paraphrasing, um, he said that the president wants to build America's dependence on government. Is there a fine line between investing in America's future and creating dependency among Americans? Or do you wholly reject that characterization of what the president's trying to do? I wholly reject the characterization because the frame is completely wrong. The whole point of government is to make sure that we give people a fighting chance to do just as well as anybody else. And you know the racial inequity in this country, the racial injustice in this country, you know the economic injustice and inequity. And because there has been this narrative, neoliberal narrative, that government should get out of our way and we should just let the private sector do everything. The president said what we have been saying for a decade, trickle-down economics does not work. We have the most inequity since the early 1900s in this country, wealth inequality, income inequality, and it's because we bought into that George Will frame that somehow there's a dependence. It's not about dependence. It's about investment so that people can then be self-sufficient. You wanna know the best reason that we should invest in free college for everyone, in healthcare for everyone. It's so that businesses can innovate, so that people can take jobs that they really love, so they can be entrepreneurs, so that they can get the education they need. It is all about, in a weird sense, in a like t technical wonky sense, productivity. How do we increase our human ability to not just survive, which even that's been difficult for so many people, but to thrive? And if we can do that, and government is the only force that can play that role in my mind, then our whole economy is gonna do better. Here's, here's one of the things that um, I, I like about you as a progressive, because the, the interactions I have had and conversations I have had with progressives have tended to be all or nothing. You're either all you're you're either for 100 percent of what I want or you're part of the problem. And one of the things that I've I've seen you say in past interviews is that, you know, progressives need to learn how to, quote, take the win. Um, to be pragmatic and in, in some ways to be incremental, but th with the goal of getting as much of the progressive agenda as possible to get it from idea, ideas into reality. How hard is it for you to convince fellow progressives 
that taking the win is really a victory? A couple things. You know, being incremental is not the way I think about it, right? But I think about what are foundational changes to the system and the structures that may not go all the way, but they are foundational structural changes. And that's what I'm always looking for. Incremental change where you get, you know, a few more people, a little bit more of something, but the underlying structure never changes, I'm less interested in doing. But if we're thinking about really, you know, fundamental structural change, then that to me is worthy. So let me give you an example. I am pushing very hard right now with not just progressives, but with frontliners. I hope we talk about this trend as well. Frontliners in the most vulnerable districts in the country to take on pharmaceutical drug pricing, something that no president has done yet and to really make drug prices affordable, and then to take the savings from those drug prices and lower the Medicare eligibility age and expand the benefits. Why is that not incremental? Because it's fundamental structural change on drug price negotiations, and it is fundamental structural change in expanding Medicare so that we can get to, hopefully, in my belief, a system where Everybody has that opportunity to get health care. And you know I'm the Medicare for All sponsor. But to me, that's structural change where we are dramatically um, increasing the number of people that qualify for good quality health care. What, what is this? I've never heard of frontliners. Oh, frontliners are, uh, that's a term that the DCCC uses for people that are in the most vulnerable districts in the country. So these are generally Trump districts. So I'll give you an example. My colleague, Jared Golden, is in a district that Trump won by seven points. Um, He is really one of the most vulnerable districts. Um, He has done a great job of keeping that district And he, along with Connor Lamb, Cindy Axney, Susan Wilde, these are all people in very, very vulnerable districts, came together with uh, me, Joe Neguse, and other progressives to write a letter to the president about exactly what I'm saying, that this needs to be included in the American Families Plan, and we're pushing very hard for that. Um, um, I seem to recall after the November election, there was a lot of tension uh, within the Democratic the Democratic caucus between quote unquote progressives and quote unquote centrists, Um, you know, one side accusing the other side of not doing enough to uh, make their own case so that they wouldn't be so vulnerable. What is, what is the case that could be made by frontliners that what president Biden is pursuing the agenda he is pursuing um, doesn't adhere to the quote unquote progressive, pejoratively progressive label, but that it is something that is um, that is meant to inure to the benefit of all Americans. Well, let me just get rid of the labels um, because I think that's the, you know, I, I'm the chair of the Progressive Caucus. Obviously, I'm a proud progressive. I love people to talk about progressive ideas, but it doesn't matter to me if they call it progressive or they call it centrist or whatever, as long as the idea is the same. And so you don't see necessarily Jared Golden talking about progressive ideas, but you might see many of these frontliners talking about um, populist ideas. You might see many of these frontliners talking about ideas that lift up 
the average person making government work for the people. Those are things, whether it's a $15 minimum wage, whether it's lowering the Medicare eligibility age, um, these are all things that frontliners and progressives believe in. And I've always thought progressives are, you know, we are very populist. We are about the people. We are about lifting up the boats of everyone and not just the people at the very top. And so that's how I think many of them talk about it. And it's why even Medicare for all is very popular in many of these districts. It's why Bernie Sanders did very well in many of these districts, because the ideas that he was pushing for and we are pushing for um, Elizabeth Warren as well is it are really about having government work for the people and giving people the opportunity to make a, a beautiful, dignified life for themselves. So let's talk about um, Congress and your Republican colleagues. And I'm curious to know, how has the mood or the atmosphere changed um, at the Capitol after what happened on January 6th? And the, the idea that some of them um, were perfectly happy and fine to have happen happen. It's been really tough. Um, and you'll hear this not only from those of us in the Progressive Caucus, but also uh, people who have prided themselves on being bipartisan for a very long time. It's hard to work with people who are actively promoting the big lie still. Um, people who are actively denying that the insurrection happened when we were all there. We were there. We were some of us were trapped and and thought we were going to die that night um, and so or that morning. And so I think it has been a very difficult thing to square the circles. I mean, you know, I just there are many of us who don't want to work with people who c continue to promote the big lie. We still don't have accountability for many of the actions that have that happened on January 6th, including from the from Donald Trump. Um, and so and everyone's still dealing, including our staff, the custodians, you know, everyone who works in the Capitol is still dealing with their own version of trauma. You know, I was invited to the president's speech um, a couple of days ago, and there was this moment when I thought, I really hope I'm not in the gallery. I can't be in the gallery right now. That's where I was trapped. And I, I didn't, I think I didn't expect the strength of feeling that came up with that idea. I was on the main floor, thankfully. Um, uh, but I, I actually told the speaker's office, I, I, please don't put me in the gallery. I can't, I can't be up there right now. Um, so I think it is real on a personal level. It is real on a political level. The Republicans are continuing with the ridiculousness of what they're doing in Arizona, um, doing a private recount that's funded by Trump donors uh, in large part and taxpayers. And um, the, the whole promotion that this election was a lie is so destructive to our democracy and our future. One of the other things that that happened on January 6th, so you you got evacuated out of the House gallery uh, into what was supposed to be a secure room, a safe room, but you were in there with lots of other people, uh, lots of other people, including Republicans who refused to wear a mask. There's the the um, 
the video of Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester. I don't know if you were in that same room. I was. I was right behind her. I was watching her do that. Try to give masks to her Republican colleagues, one of whom was the infamous Marjorie Taylor Greene. And they all looked at her. It was like watching, uh, you know, a high school cafeteria with the so-called cool kids looking at, you know, someone trying to make them do something that they didn't want to do that they thought was uncool. And one of the results of that was that you got COVID. That's right. I got COVID. My husband got COVID simply because they wouldn't wear a mask. And um, I can't tell you how angry I was. I've calmed down some since then, but I'm angry for the country. Um, I'm angry for, for obviously for my family, but most of all, I'm angry at the I'm just going to say it, the stupidity of making mask wearing in a pandemic political. Um, it is it is so uh, selfish. It is so selfish. And the reality is that this is what's also happening with the vaccines. Now, I will say that I saw a video. I didn't agree with all parts of it, but but by the Republican Doctors Caucus, there's a new Republican Doctors Caucus telling people to get a vaccine and telling people that it's safe. And I'm grateful to them for that, for being willing to push back because we're not, I mean, this is not political. We're talking about people's lives and vaccines save lives. And the fact that there are all these people in primarily Republican districts and Republican states that are refusing to get the vaccine when we have, uh, you know, the virus is is just going crazy in, in my birth country of India, all around the world. and our safety and security as a globe depends on people taking personal responsibility around the vaccine and getting those shots and wearing masks. And I, I'm glad you brought up um, uh, India and it being your birth country, because I was also going to next ask you about your parents. Um, yeah. You just came back from, from India from seeing your parents who both um, contracted COVID. How are they doing? Uh, thank you for asking. They are home and recuperating and they're through the worst of it. So I am really grateful. That is not the case for most, for so many people across India. And I want to say that the doctors and the nurses, the healthcare professionals, um, frontline uh, providers are doing an amazing job in what is the most heartbreaking of circumstances. Even when I was there, um, you know, the smoke in the air was thick. Uh, it was just starting. The surge was just starting when I got there. Jonathan, I got there to visit my parents because I haven't seen them in a year and a half. And while I was in the air, my doc, my father was taken to the hospital and uh, diagnosed with COVID and my mother five days later. So I never got to see my dad in the whole time that I was there. He was in the ICU in isolation. Yeah. Um, he got out after I had to leave to come back for, for my duties here in Congress. And so it's been, um, you know, some version of what so many people uh, around the globe are dealing with, and certainly in India. And this issue of vaccine equity is, uh, it's, it should be personal for every one of us. It's not just the morally right thing to do, but it is actually incredibly important for crushing the virus. Out of the 900 million shots that have been uh, given so far, Jonathan, only 0.3% of those have gone to lower income countries. So sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Asia, Latin America, the vast majority of the world where 84% of the population lives 
have not gotten access to the vaccines and don't have the ability to combat the virus. So not only do we need to immediately ship aid out, and I was in conversation with the White House over the last week to make sure that we got that aid out, um, and I'm grateful to the president for announcing some of that aid to India, but also we need to do this TRIPS waiver um, if, uh, the WTO needs to, we need to pass this TRIPS wa waiver because that allows for that intellectual property patents to be waived so that countries can start to produce some of the things that they need to produce in the midst of a pandemic. And we could also really ramp up our domestic manufacturing to help provide millions of doses to the rest of the world. It would be important for the United States to play that role. And we need to do even more than the president has already announced with 60 million doses going around the world. We can do much more than that because we already have enough doses to give every American two shots. You know, um, the the nation, the United States has been sort of riveted by the images, the pictures and, and the video coming out of India of just funeral pyres everywhere, um, graves being dug, that the, the surge is a, a tsunami uh, a, of grief. Was it, could you see when you were there, could you see that ramping up in the days that you were there? Yes, it was the very beginning of that. Um, you know, it, it was, my parents had gotten the vaccine four weeks before, the first dose of the vaccine four weeks before. Had they not gotten that first dose, Jonathan, I, I don't know if they'd be here with us. My mom is 80 years old. My dad is 90 years old. Um, my dad needed oxygen. Uh, he was, you know, I'm not sure they would have even gotten hospital beds because that was just starting. So in some, you know, you try to find silver linings and everything that you do. And in some weird way, I'm glad they got it when they did, because it was at the very beginning of that surge. And just as I was leaving, the country was going on lockdown. So my sister was there right after me for two weeks. She came in and was with my parents when I left. And right as she was leaving, they really had almost locked everything down. So yes, we saw the beginnings of that. We have uh, a doctor who lives in our uh, my mom's building and you know, just the overwhelm that doctors were already starting to see the uh, hospital beds were filled up. Um, they hadn't run out of oxygen at that point. But imagine you've seen all the pictures of oxygen cylinders on the back of rickshaws, you know, and, and uh, the Gurdwaras, uh, the Sikh temples in India have, have been stepping up and, and providing oxygen to people. Um, but they don't, there's, there's not enough oxygen for, for people who need it. Um, there's no hospital beds, there's not enough oxygen, and the healthcare providers and the frontline providers are doing yeoman's work, but with very little to work with. So as, you, as we've been discussing, you were, you were born in India, you grew up in Singapore and also Indonesia, and then you came to the United States to go to Georgetown. You were 16. <laughs> you were 16. Yeah. And you came, you, 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 you came here by yourself. No, no yeah. one else to go. What was that like? You know, um, I recently wrote a book and uh, it's called uh, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. And in it, 
I finally allowed myself to think back to those years uh, of coming here. And I think I had pushed a lot of it out of my mind because, you know, it's, it's, what's the point of dwelling on everything that was hard? You know, we immigrants, we people of color in general, we are used to just getting through each day. That resilience and that commitment um, is part of who we are. But it also means that you have parts of your mind that are just shut off. And so I reread letters that I had sent my parents. I wrote to them every week on aerograms. Nobody knows what aerograms any are anymore, but <laughs> they were, they're, no, they're like a, a long sheet, maybe eight and a half by 11, and they fold into thirds. And, and then they, the sides kind of come over and they stick on. And um, I used aerograms because they were cheap. I mean, we had no money. You know, I had one phone call home a year um, was all we could afford. And there was no Skype or anything like that. So we used aerograms. And so my mom kept all of our letters. And my sister had come three years before me. So she was really the pioneer in many ways um, because she was in the United States and also doing everything she could to kind of, you know, get through in a new country. And so my mom saved every letter and I went back and read them all. And I was just struck by, I was sick all the time. You know, I had, I had asthma. I was cold. <laughs> I, you know, we didn't, I, I had to get kind of approval from my dad because our finances were so slim to buy long underwear because it was cold. Um, so just all of the things and kind of the pressure of being here and, and, knowing that my parents gave all their savings to for me to be here. So I had to do well, you know, so I would apologize if I got a B in, in a class. Uh, it, I mean, it's just really, it's, it's kind of incredible to think back on. But at the same time, look at where I am today. I mean, I am the version of the disappearing American dream, you know, um, came with nothing in my pockets, an immigrant, and now I sit as one of 14 members of Congress. And that is why I am so committed to paying it forward. Every person, black, brown, indigenous, poor, working class, whatever, should have the opportunity that I had, and it's disappearing. I don't know that the American dream means that much to people today. You're the first Indian American woman elected to the House of Representatives, is that right? That's correct. I mean, I had to, I had to first like rub my eyes and then go back and double check. Wait, seriously? Is that for real? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It's it still boggles my mind that we are still going through these firsts, firsts yeah. of of all these things. Um, I've got to get your your thoughts on another first, and that is Vice President Harris, who the first Indian American. Um, to be elected vice president of the United States. Any point of personal pride in that? Oh, so much, so much. She called me the other day and I just, I had to say hello, Madam Vice President, three times just because it sounded so good and felt so good. Um, absolutely, you know, so much personal pride, so much national pride, right? This is something we all take pride in that she is the first uh, Black woman, the first South Asian American woman, uh, the first woman <laughs> in that position. <laughs> There's that too. And so, yes, it is uh, deep personal pride. And you may have read, I did an op-ed about this in the LA Times. We have a strange sort of um, distant family connection. So her aunt, her mother's sister, 
was the mentee of my great aunt, who was one of the first female OBGYNs in the country and ended up as the dean of a medical school up north. And her aunt ended up as the dean of the medical school much later, but wrote the the kind of revised book, which my great aunt originally authored, that is used in all the medical schools for OBGYN. She actually recognizes my aunt in the acknowledgments, my great aunt in the acknowledgments as her mentor. So we also have that kind of personal connection there, but it's been wonderful to see her. And of course, the bills we did together, access to counsel, her first bill, my first bill together, um, just passed the house. And uh, we talked about that the other day, the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. We just got you know, the $400 billion commitment to long-term care that the president has made uh, is a big piece of moving long-term care uh, uh, services. So lots to, lots to celebrate there as well. Let me get you on one more thing before I, before I let you go. Um, and I didn't want to let drop um, the assertion you made a moment ago, um, and that being, you know, you are the embodiment of, of the American dream. And you think that that dream is disappearing. The idea of from nothing in America, you can, you can become anything. What do you say? Or what would you say to those Americans, and to be perfectly blunt, white Americans who see you, see me, and see the um, other black and brown people who in a couple decades or a little bit more will end up becoming a minority majority country. For those folks, they feel like quote unquote, we're losing our country. Yeah. What do you say to them in, is there any way to convince them that their country's not being lost? It's being fortified. Yes, I think there is. And of course, um, this is a complicated question, but what I say to people is, Look, everybody wants to be seen. This is the thing that I've learned as an organizer. Everybody wants to be seen. And of course, Black people in this country have not had the American dream available to them either, the vast majority. I mean, you are an exception to what has been the norm for too long. And we're dealing with that now. We have people like you that are coming. That's true for immigrants as well. I'm the first. It, it, it's, it's an exception. It's not the norm. But white people also need to be seen and heard, but they can't pit themselves against us. And so what I always try to do is start with the pain, right? Most of the resistance from white people in America comes from fear and pain. Now, some of it is just racism. And that's, that's why I said it's complicated. It's much harder to deal with that. But, but a lot of it is just they're worried about their own lives and their own people. And so when I go on Fox News, and I get an anti-immigrant caller who calls me and says, and this happened on C-SPAN, actually, um, you know, and, and rants about how his son can't get a job. The thing that my mind goes to is, I'm so sorry that your son can't get a job. And if you start there, then, and you acknowledge that pain and you listen to it, then you can start to go to, now let's look at why that is. And it's always been easier to blame someone that is perceived as different from you, a black person, a brown person, an immigrant. 
Um, but that's not really where the blame should lie. And so then we can go to that. But if you don't see and hear the pain that people have from why is $15 popular across the country? I mean, Florida went for Donald Trump and passed 15 with a supermajority of voters because whether you're white, black or brown, and yes, the vast majority of minimum wage workers in this country are people of color and poor people. But the, the reality is that affects a lot of white people too. So the moments that we have to include by saying white, black and brown um, is, is helpful because everyone wants to be seen and that's just a human desire. And everyone wants their pain to be acknowledged, not to have an oppression Olympics or a hierarchy of oppressions that says mine is much worse than yours, which often it is, it is. But if we're going to do this together, then we've got to call people in as well as calling them out. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of the great state of Washington, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL.